Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron, and in this episode, we're taking a look at one of the most complex and controversial elements of American society, the criminal justice system. You'd have to be mad not to see that the history and politics of race in the U.S. is a big part of the dynamics of criminal justice. If you're looking at cities like Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, these are all black majority cities. Um, They have black elected officials, but you still have a totally unaccountable police system. So why is that? Courtrooms, prison cells, and the back of police cars, those are probably the main locations where we mentally locate the criminal justice system. But today we're gonna consider how the fundamental structure of society actually plays a role in constructing the realities of crime and punishment. So just when it comes to the number of people in U.S. prisons, there's something very different going on in America. The U.S. has over five times as much of its population in prison than any other comparable country, such as England and Germany. But it didn't always used to be that way. In the middle of the 20th century, the U.S. was pretty similar to those other countries. But now, America not only has the highest prison population in the world, but also the second highest per capita incarceration rate. As of 2013, over 2.2 million adults were currently in prison. And within that population, 40% is black, even though African Americans only make up 13% of the entire U.S. population. No other comparable country has similar figures. Why is the U.S. so different? That's Nicola Lacey. I'm school professor of law, gender, and social policy here at LSE. And Nicola has also held additional positions at Oxford and here at the LSE as the chair of criminal law and the law department. I'm, I'm a lawyer by training, but I work on criminal justice uh, as, a, as a social institution. So she uses not only legal thinking to understand criminal justice issues, but also sociology, political science, and, and history as well. You can imagine why, with that background, she would be particularly interested in comparative studies. I think in part because David Soskis, my husband, who's a political scientist and with whom I'm working on this current project, um, lived for many years in Berlin, and I spent a lot of time there, and I always used to uh, wonder what, you know, what made the German system feel so very different from ours. So at this time, Nicola's husband was working on a theory called Varieties of Capitalism, which we could do an entire podcast on. But for our purposes, it's important to mention that this theory integrates a number of structural elements in a society, like the organization of government, education system, labor relations, and more. This theory basically uses those structural elements to explain the differences between developed countries. And as I heard David and his colleagues developing this argument, I I found myself wondering, I wonder if this tells us anything about the very different patterns of crime and punishment that we see in these otherwise relatively similar advanced democracies. And so Nicola was asked to present a set of public lectures called the Hamlin Lectures, and she took on this question of why we see such different rates and patterns and systems of crime and punishment in the United States. And so I thought I'd have a go at answering that question. So let's set the scene. We're going back to the 1970s. At this point, many Western countries had similar imprisonment rates. So in Germany, Sweden, Norway, England, Wales, and the Netherlands, all of those countries had less than 100 people out of 100,000 in prison. That's less than 0.1% of their respective populations. 
And the U.S. was just slightly higher than those countries at this time, but still less than 0.2% of the American population was in prison. If you flash forward to the early 2000s, you'll see the U.S. imprisonment rate has skyrocketed compared to its European peers. England has the highest rate at that time of those European countries at a little more than 0.1% of their population, but the U.S. had nearly 1% of their population in prisons. Nicola and her husband looked specifically at those 40 years, from 1975 to 2005. That's the sort of period where most is changing, yes. Now, keep in mind that in the years leading up to that time frame, in the beginning and the middle of the 20th century, England and the U.S. had roughly the same ratio of their citizens in prisons. Of course, the U.S. is much bigger population-wise, so there were more actual people in American prisons. But these two countries were proportionally similar in terms of incarceration rates. Then from the sort of mid-70s, we start to see a huge divergence so that the U.S. imprisonment rate during between then and 2005 goes up by five times. It's, it's, it's just an enormous rise, so it ends up in high 700s per 100,000. The U.K., on the other hand... Ours is, you know, so much less than that. It's 180 per 100,000, despite the fact that actually we also have seen a more than doubling of our imprisonment rate. So there's something going on in both countries. The U.S. and the U.K. were going through similar economic turbulence at this time. So Nicholas says that accounts for some of the increased incarceration in both countries. But then the question, the really big question to answer is, why is the U.S. so different? We had equally dramatic deindustrialization in this country, you know, relative to our size. Um, and yet we haven't had that same association if we assume that there is some kind of causal relationship here. So that must have something to do with social institutions. It might have to do with culture. It might have to do with all sorts of things. So the obvious thing it has to do with, of course, is criminal justice policy. American criminal justice policy has been such that the decision has been... I mean, cri crime is higher, uh, is distinctively higher, and serious violent crime, which in our view we, we think we can show has a particular impact on public opinion and hence on insecurity and the, the pressure, the public electoral pressure to push law and order up the agenda. Now, when she says agenda, she's referring to the political agenda, the priorities in public policymaking as pushed by the public or constituencies or elected officials. Nicola points out that there are obviously differences in the U.S. criminal justice policies, such as minimum sentences for certain crimes, the three strikes policy in certain states, the war on drugs. And there's race. There's race. Uh, but we mustn't forget that the racial disproportion, the over over punishment, if you like, relative to their presence in the population of black Britons is even higher than that of African Americans in the US. So America is not unique in having a major problem in terms of over 
representation of certain ethnic groups in its criminal justice system in New Zealand is significantly worse again. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to be mad not to see that the history and politics of race in the U.S. is a big part of the dynamics of criminal justice and of the electoral dynamics of criminal justice and of the uh, way in which it was an obvious strategy as part of the Southern strategy to increase criminalization and uh, to have more of a federal input here through the war on drugs. But nonetheless, we don't think this is ultimately the explanation, nor do we think that it's good enough just to say, well, it's because the US had these different policies. It just, you know, introduced policies that were tougher on such crimes it had. The real question is, what was it about the US that made those policy choices seem sensible to politicians? Nicola is saying that it has to do with the political forces behind those policies she mentioned, such as minimum sentencing, the war on drugs, three strikes policies. But why were these policies even enacted? We thought, well, what about the political system? Now, the political system in the US is obviously very different from the UK. And one of the ways in which which it's different, which we think could be extremely important, uh, is its radical decentralization. In other words, you have not just the federal structure, which is also true of Australia and Canada in different ways. You also have an enormous amount of policy-making power at the local level, at the city level, even at the county level. So that led us to investigate a number of hypotheses, really. The first, if you have a competitive political system and you have this hyper-democracy, hyper-electoral democracy, then insofar as you have the conditions for a sort of arms race or a prisoner's dilemma effect, as I called it in my book, then it's going to be magnified in a system like the U.S. Secondly, they looked at the potential for accountability gaps. So it looks really uh, very accountable and democratic to have all these elections for sheriffs and police chiefs and mayors and and DAs, prosecutors, even judges. Um, But if those who are competing for electoral position, let's say a district attorney, stand to gain electorally by promising toughness, tough sentencing and few prosecutions dropped, they don't conversely have to pay the electoral costs of that because the costs are kicked upstairs to the next political level. So actually, although it looks very accountable, there may be accountability gaps and there's scholarship that really shows that to be the case. Thirdly, very important about local democracy in the U.S. um, is that to an even greater extent than U.S. democracy generally, party discipline is either non-existent or very weak. Party discipline refers to the ability of leaders within political parties to direct their policy priorities and get their members to support those same policies. In general, the U.K. has pretty strong party discipline but it's pretty weak in the U.S. by comparison. And that is somewhat true in the U.S. at the federal level, less so at the state level, perhaps. It's not true at all at the local level. Very often, these uh, people standing for office are not standing on a party system at all. That means that they craft their own platform, and that means that where crime policy, tough crime policy is popular, 
Now, why should it be popular? That is the question. Why should it be so much more popular in the US? Well, this is where a further sort of issue or feature of local democracy becomes important. A major driving force of any election is, of course, the electorate. So who votes in these most local elections, the localist elections, in the municipalities and counties? And then how many people even vote in these elections? And the unfortunate fact is that, A, turnout is relatively low in these local elections for school boards and judges and DAs. Uh, B, it tends to be relatively advantaged people, more advantaged than at state or federal level. Typically, in fact, it's homeowners. Homeowners are especially incentivized to vote in local elections. Their primary asset, the value of their home, depends heavily on the policies enacted by these local officials. And they know that property prices are maintained by good schools, good public services, um, low crime, and so on. And so what we argue is that um, local democracy has fed into a sort of polarizing dynamic where you get the construction of better and worse areas and then that magnifies itself over time, particularly in these very difficult economic conditions post-1970s, especially in some of these Midwest, Northeast cities where jobs just collapsed, and collapsed, of course, most unfortunately, relatively soon after the Civil Rights Act, after African Americans had finally got formally equal uh, access to the labor market. So that electoral element is what Nicola and her husband argue contributes to the major increase in incarceration in the U.S. between 1975 and 2005. It's why they believe the U.S. is so different, why the U.S. has had such a dramatic increase in incarceration rates, and even more broadly, why we have the specific laws in the books that we've been talking about. Really, we argue that the impact of this ostensibly hyper-democratic system is very tending in these conditions to inequality. And if you look not just at the data on crime and punishment, you find that the US is doing very badly compared with even this country, which does, does a lot worse than Northern Europe, um, on measures like presidential segregation, about 11 times higher in the US than here. Now, we, we know that London is has quite a bit of segregation, but 11 times less across the country than the U.S. Uh, child poverty, massively higher in the U.S. Literacy among the poorly, uh, the poor, much worse in the U.S. So all these outcomes speak to a kind of concentration of disadvantage. And our argument is that the one bulwark we have against this here, because we suffer many of the same dynamics in our social and economic system, uh, is that because these policy areas in policing, uh, sentencing, planning and zoning and education are fundamentally made at, at national level, there is a sort of overview. There isn't a case of local people voting for goods that will stay in their area and not for goods that might travel out, like education. And like she said, this electoral and political force also contributes to a concentration of disadvantage. 
It explains why the criminal justice system disproportionately affects certain groups. There's another big debate among criminologists in the States as to whether the term mass incarceration, which is standardly used to describe this unique rate of uh, incarceration in a democratic country, uh, is highly misleading because it wasn't mass, it was targeted. You know, in other words, you were not everybody was at the same risk of being in prison. And so we have to reconsider who is impacted most by the criminal justice system. It's mainly, it's, it's massively more men than women. It's massively more young men than older men. African-Americans and indeed Hispanics are overrepresented. And, but particularly, it's the intersection between being a young man uh, and your level of education exacerbated by race. So if you look at a young African-American man who leaves, leaves school without a high school diploma, then his chances of finding himself in, in prison at some point up to the age of 25 are, by some calculations, greater than your chance of getting married, greater than your chance of serving in the military. So you can see how this perspective on targeted incarceration really contextualizes what is happening in black and Latino communities across the country. And then suddenly you have a significant number of the young men taken out of that community. And this puts extra stress on many of the things that scholars say exacerbate racial inequalities. As we've been zeroing in on the dynamic between race and the criminal justice system, you might have been reminded of a contemporary social movement that has emerged to challenge this very inequality and the racial implications of the criminal justice system. The phrase Black Lives Matter began as a hashtag following the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin. But this changed very quickly with the uh, murder of Michael Brown by a white police officer um, in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. That's Michael McQuarrie. Michael's a sociologist and professor here at the LSE. And I am joining you from Los Angeles. And so following the death of another young African-American man named Michael Brown. Uh, it was then that the movement really started focusing more explicitly on police violence towards African-Americans. Um, and there were lots of protest groups there, but Black Lives Matter really kind of emerged as the most visible of them all. So, you know. Michael's research offers some insight on the connection between the Black Lives Matter movement and the criminal justice system. So the connection to the criminal justice movement, uh, I think, started out as somewhat accidental. The Michael Brown murder, I think, really caused the Black Lives Matter's leadership to delve more into the criminal justice issues. And the fact that Ferguson became such a flashpoint in American politics um, around race relations and criminal justice, um, I think, really kind of focused everybody's attention on this issue. And Black Lives Matter has been very closely associated with that issue ever since. There's a whole host of literature out there now about how uh, the system of Jim Crow, of segregation, um, restricted voting rights, and so on, which was dismantled by the civil rights legislation of the mid-1960s, has really been replaced by an alternative system which is not legally racialized. In other words, it's really about crime. It doesn't specify black crime or anything like that. So it's not it's not um, discriminatory in any obvious way, but it clearly targets the poor and people of color and African-Americans in particular. And the result has been the construction of a massive system 
for incarcerating black people in particular and um, has resulted in a very large escalation in the intensification of policing to put those people there. Michael's research has identified another accountability gap in this system. He's been looking at how police uh, who are municipal employees have become relatively unmoored from any sort of municipal or community accountability. And if that's true, that's a governance issue. Meaning, if public employees are not responsive or accountable to the public, then that has to do with the setup or organization of the government. Now, of course, the police aren't elected, but people higher up in the chain of command are actually elected officials. And the idea behind having elected officials is that they're accountable to the community. So where's the disconnect between the public, specifically black citizens, and the elected officials who technically oversee the public employees or the police in this specific system? Now, if you're thinking about a racialized criminal justice system and why it's so unaccountable to black citizens, for example, we could look at things like the differences in scale. So at the federal level, that's the level where African-Americans are going to have the least political power, and you might expect racialized criminal justice policies. But then if you look at the local level where black citizens would have the most political power, you see mayors that basically can't do anything. They're often elected judges at that level as well. Uh, They're often elected DAs. Um, And it can be a problem when you have things like a black minority in a city. But if you're looking at cities like Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, these are all black majority cities. Um, They have black elected officials, but you still have a totally unaccountable police system. So why is that? Presumably, those institutions should be reflecting the views of the citizens, but they're not. Uh, And that's sort of my key question. And that's why it's a governance question for me. Why Why is that not true? Some scholars explain this lack of accountability by highlighting a broader system of contemporary discrimination, and that's been called the new Jim Crow. Which is falling disproportionately on blacks, but is really sort of distorting the entire system of American governance, um, and it's created a two-tier system of citizenship again, which resubordinates African Americans despite the success of the civil rights movement. And I think the Black Lives Matters movement is very aware of this. Um, And as a result, I think they understand themselves as not simply fighting against um, uh, criminal justice issues or trying to get um, criminal justice reform, but I think they view themselves as being uh, the leaders of a second civil rights movement. Uh, And in that characterization, they're probably correct. And so have the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement succeeded in bringing these issues to the to the forefront, to the mainstream conversation? Well, if you look at the two national conventions that we just had uh, to nominate presidential candidates um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, this issue is front and center. Both conventions were absolutely talking about it. Um, it was something that was discussed at great length. The visibility of either police or victims was extremely high. Uh, in both conventions. Um, Trump's obviously running as a law and order candidate, so this is going to be certainly going to be central to his perspective, although he obviously will be about defending law enforcement agencies um, from political influence. Um, And uh, that's not to the benefit of people of color. And so these issues have definitely entered the mainstream political discourse and debate. But what about actual policies? 
the specific changes they'd like to see made to the criminal justice system. There's sort of two main policy statements um, that Black Lives Matters has. One is Campaign Zero, which is pretty much exclusively focused on criminal justice reform. And then the other is the more recent document, which deals with criminal justice reform, but clearly sees criminal justice uh, reform as um, part of a broader civil rights struggle and anti-racist struggle. Um, so in that document, they're also sort of you know demanding reparations for slavery, which is you know an idea that's been kicked around for a while since the since the 1970s. Um, and you know if you're interested in the inclusion of African Americans in American society, there's a lot of merit to the idea, but um, you know, very unlikely to come to pass anytime soon. But clearly does situate the movement as engaged in an anti anti racist struggle, not simply a police reform struggle. In terms of the policies specifically themselves, um, you know, what I would say looking at most Black Lives Matters policy proposals is that they are extremely smart. Um, they are all crowdsourced, um, which is you know, one of the amazing innovations that they've really done is they've really figured out how to develop very sophisticated policy documents from crowdsourced internet discussions. Um, and in that sense, they sort of moved way beyond the sort of decentralized deliberative, participatory deliberative structure that Occupy had um, that didn't really generate, you know, very solid, unified policy proposals, even as it protested. Um, Black Lives Matter's movement has really sort of figured that out. And Michael says that Black Lives Matter's leaders have identified a couple of the same roots of the problem that his research really highlights. One is... The issue of black political power. Um, so policing was once largely a municipal issue. Uh, if you look at Black Lives Matters policy documents, it's clear that since 1968 it has become a national issue. Um, federal legislation created a huge percentage of these circumstances that they see as problematic. Um, federal funding is now heavily involved in local policing. So while we don't fund affordable housing and mental health anymore with federal support in cities, we do fund policing. And that the effect of that has been to disconnect police departments from electoral accountability. So we have situations where, and this is often cited by movement supporters, you know, a number of the cities where there have been recent problems, including um, Baton Rouge, Baltimore, Cleveland, these are all cities with black mayors that presumably could rein in their police departments. And the assumption is that they don't because they're sort of modern-day Uncle Toms um, there to do the white man's bidding or something. But my response to that is always simply, so what is the scope of action available to these mayors relative to their police departments? So the cities have huge problems. They have no revenues. And they have no control over their revenue. Uh, police are the only well-funded branch of city government. And a lot of their money doesn't come locally, which means police departments don't have to pay very much attention to mayors. Union, uh, police unions are a big, big part of this problem. And the Black Lives Matters policy documents make it clear that union contracts are a big part of this problem. But union negotiators use this leverage that police departments have over, over elected officials to negotiate basically autonomy for the police. Um, which undermines any kind of political accountability. And, you know, so Black Lives Matter is, uh, is insistent in all of their documents that we get some sort of community control and community accountability for police. That's a very, very good thing to do. And I do think that it would 
it could potentially be uh, transformative in a lot of ways. But by ignoring the issue of political control, you're simply, you know, the danger is that you undermine the ability of the authority of municipal elected officials even more. And that happens to be the place where black political power is something that can be realized. Um, so it's a very, very dangerous, you know, there's a very dangerous potential outcome where you further undermine the ability of African-American citizens to have a voice in politics. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say that that would be the sort of the, the one thing that I would sort of emphasize about that is this disconnection of police departments from municipal political control um, is just as important as the issue of the disconnection from community accountability. Now, where does this movement go from here? I think that their policy proposals have a very real possibility for becoming law, um, for being institutionalized. They're, some of them are very pragmatic. Um, some of them could be realized today. Some of them, they often have, you know, in their documents, they often cite municipalities that have already introduced a lot of these reforms. I'm not so sure how effective they'll be. I mean, you know, one interesting example has been uh, body cameras. Most U.S. police departments, not most, but a number of U.S. police departments have introduced body cameras as a way, and it was something that both sides agreed upon as a useful tool because cops thought they weren't doing anything wrong, and they figured that the body cameras would show that, and people are being abused, thought the cops were doing lots of things wrong, and the body cameras would show that, so body cameras have been introduced all over the place, but uh, we're seeing that um, they that the presence of body cameras, um, while helpful in sort of giving an idea of what's going on, is not a solution to the problem. So once we have proof, for example, that there's abuse occurring, then you run up against the problem that there's actually nothing you can do about it, <laughs> because the police are completely unaccountable, because their union contracts, you know, immunize them from prosecution effectively. Uh, so, you know, we're sort of slowly kind of uh, unwinding this ball of yarn, and the Black Lives Matters activism has been central in that. All right, I'm now joined by my co-host, Chris Gilson. Hey, Chris. Hey, Denise. And Sophie Donsman. Hey, Sophie. Hi there. And it's been a little while since we've been here together, but we're back in the swing of things. And so uh, I'll get the ball rolling on our on our discussion today. There was one thing that seemed to weave these two interviews together for me uh, and, and the points that both of these academics were making. It's that accountability is a major, major issue in the U.S., criminal justice system basically there are gaps in between the general public or even the public that's being affected by the criminal justice system and the law enforcement sector i mean i think that's that's really ironic in some cases because unlike in this country although actually starting to change now is a lot of the police commissioners and then the officials and the judges too are elected and so you would think that would be a line for there to be accountability right but actually what's happening in a lot of places is that because they're elected the 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 judges and the police commissioners who are promising to crack down the most on crime and usually that's sort of a code for people of color and and other minorities uh it means that um you have everyone who wants you know, the real tough on crime point of view gets their point coming through and that becomes the the incarceration or the criminal justice policy in those areas this is not an instance when more democracy increases accountability it's actually where more democracy decreases accountability and it, it's a little bit of the way you look at it the perspective that you bring to it because the elections that she's highlighting the super duper hyper local elections have the smallest turnout have the smallest number of uh, actual voters in the electorate 
electorate. And therefore, it's, you know, they are then the least democratic elections in the states, while the presidential elections are when you get the highest turnout possible, basically. Moving on to another point uh, I had, Mike McCormick talked a little bit about Black Lives Matter and how it began with as a social media hashtag. And as someone who's very interested in social media and how it works in society and its influences, I wonder... Could Black Lives Matter, as we know, the protest movement, could it have existed without social media? Yeah. How based is it on social media? A lot of people talk about it sort of being the successor to the 1960s civil rights march, marching movement, which didn't exist in the time of social media. They were right. sort of distributing thousands of pamphlets and all that. So what do you guys think? Do you think yeah, it yeah. still exist? So recently I heard some people talking about the differences between 1968 and uh, 2016. And one thing was that in 1968, the amount of riots and violence that was going on in American cities was much greater. More people were being injured. More people were dying. Even cities were burning. But right now, we're not seeing that same level of violence. We're not seeing that same actual destruction of property and also of of lives. On the other hand, what we are seeing are the specific cases of police brutality filmed and then distributed over social media. And we are learning more about the specific people who have been um, killed in police custody or by police. And so there might not be the same actual quantitative level of violence, but the distribution of the violence that's occurring, I think, is greater. Uh, and has a, right the mean. visibility of it exactly and i would i would suspect that has a greater impact and actually fuels a social movement in a way where people don't riot in the streets because they feel like they are voicing themselves in a different way through social media so another big element of of this entire topic is the difference of the us to the rest of the world i mean nicola lacy's Focus was re- and, and the whole idea of it was really sparked by comparing the U.S. to other countries. That was the impetus for this entire research project. I was thinking about, and I, I asked her about this when she and I sat down, I asked about the effect or the, the role that private prisons play in differentiating the U.S. system from other systems. And she said, no, this isn't the case, that, that that's not the major factor that's fueling the the wild five times more uh, imprisonment rate in the states than you see in the UK or Germany or France and basically I I mean this is a big question for the states at the moment right now because President Obama recently announced that the federal uh, contracts with private prisons weren't going to be renewed but according to the research that we heard today that's not going to make an impact at least on the imprisonment rates no, because, I mean, the, the vast majority of, uh, of prisoners are held in state prisons anyway. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, and the federal government can only, it's like with, with so many things, the federal government can only do so much because so much is, as we heard in our federalism uh, podcast, so much is sort of contracted out or allowed to the states to do. And one of the big worries is uh, about this is that what a lot of people don't know is that private agencies, private prison companies, have are responsible for a lot of the uh, immigration detention, mm-hmm. and so if they're not allowed allowed to do federal stuff at the federal level, th- then they're just going to bid even more for faster, cheaper, better immigration detention, which can't be a great thing for those who uh, have to be subjected to that. Right. I mean, those are really just kind of corralling holding centers for people 
who have already suffered enough trauma by trying to mainly in the border states but they've tried to cross the border they get caught and they're held in these private immigration detention centers um, I saw recently that the New York Times had access to photos of su- inside some of these holding cells um, they're all in the desert I mean Arizona is a desert it's it very cold at night they don't have um, access to food or water when many of these people are dehydrated several people have died in these holding centers um, which, I mean, it's unspeakable, you know? And what bothers me most is that these aren't prisons. That These people haven't seen a judge. They haven't been in court. They haven't been accused of a specific crime. They're holding centers, which are worse than prisons. Um, and everybody who, whether you're a citizen or not in the United States, you're owed due process. And that's denied to these people who are probably flooding coups and uh, fleeing coups and dictatorships and I think the irony is that the way our justice system treats these people is probably on par of the countries that they're leaving so prison private prison companies would have contracts with state governments and the state government uh, the contract sorry was for X number of prisoners per year or whatever and they charged them no matter how many prisoners came through so to get value for money, it made more sense hmm. to send more prisoners to this prison. Mm-hmm. So a lot of res- state legislators have responded by having, you know, putting in more uh, harsher laws, hmm. harsher sentencing, and that kind of thing to just literally fill, uh, fill it. And actually, uh, so wait a, minute, wait a minute. So the state was paying this company just a basic fee regardless of how many prisoners were in there so then they were motivated to put more people in that prison to not be wasting money and sometimes there'd be penalty clauses if like they didn't get the whole amount what like so you'd end up paying the same amount and this is actually this goes on to again to segue uh, another way this idea of the private prison industry so a lot of in slav rural areas state legislatures le- legislators would say we want a prison in our right, area right. because economic there's no jobs like it's a bit of land that no one else is doing anything with let's mm-hmm. have a prison here but again you need to fill those prisons with people right. and so there's more incentive for judges and for state legislators uh, we have we did have some research on the blog we can link to this in the show notes that means that they're more likely to be more more punitive be- mm. for like those kind of really banal monetary reasons it's interesting that you use the word punitive though because that also kind of affects what prison is for when we get this overcrowding it's very hard to think that the facilities that are really aimed at rehabilitation of criminals to teach them access to libraries i mean that if it's overcrowded that can't match the number of people in there and that's when these prisons just become kind of I don't know like after school detention you're just supposed to sit there and think about what you've done instead of being rehabilitated to go back into society and there's a lot of evidence that recidivists actually cost the economy huge amounts Mm -mm. billions and billions and it, it is unequivocal that when prisoners are in prison they don't commit crimes that's you know you can argue with the logic of that and there is some evidence that says that actually you know that doesn't decrease crime but what people don't realize is that when they come out, most of these people are likely to commit crimes again, often because if they do leave prison, they don't have the skills, they don't have links to family because they've been in for so long or, or whatever, or their family aren't around. It means they have no support networks. They're far more likely to go turn to a life of crime or to go back into old criminal activities because they have no other way to live. Mm. I would be curious how much of the increase that the U.S. saw f- between the 70s and the, the late 90s in incarceration rates, how much of that was sort of this cycle 
that we're talking about, basically the, the recidivism cycle that then fuels it. So you get a certain increase of a certain amount, let's say like it's twice as much as other developed countries. And then at that point, you just are creating more people who have been incarcerated and then are going to come out and then they reoffend. So you're just it's building on itself at that point. It's really interesting. I have um, a cousin who lives in L.A., and he works in this facility that um, it's tricky. It's not a halfway house, but a lot of the people who have been incarcerated since the 80s, and if you're let out now, these people don't know how to use a computer, um, and it's nothing to do with literacy or numeracy. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of skills that you forget about um, that... I mean, that would affect your chances of getting a job when you don't know how to use a computer. Um, just kind of basic things that I think we take for granted, not being in prison. Um, but I, yeah, the world's a different place since when you were incarcerated in the 80s, and that makes it even harder for you to get out and adapt. And I, I think that there would be, I would be interested if you were to add on top of the, um, the factors that Nicola Lacey identified, if you added in there a little bit of a, like, cultural perception of crime and cultural perception of um of criminals what does that really explain quite a bit of the variation between these countries because i would imagine that american culture is incredibly more punitive in its attitudes which is reflected then in the policies and political messages that get discussed and eventually voted on in these smaller elections. I mean, I think a classic case of that is the so-called war on drugs that hmm. Reagan introduced. And that was when if you are in possession of whatever amount of marijuana, you can get the same kind of sentence as if you went out and like robbed a right, right, one right. of those 7-Elevens and stabbed a guy. And that's just not right. I don't understand the logic behind that, but it is kind of the perception of that we find drugs such a criminal and heinous act and it's the way we think about things yeah yeah it's the prioritization is a lot of this wound up in terms of how crime is is kind of split on on uh, on racial lines so i will get to, I, i'm making a cogent point of this honest um <laughs> so if you think about if you look at gay rights, one of the big things about why that's kind of filtered through and become more prominent is because a lot of people just knew someone who was gay. You know, they had a brother or an uncle or a friend. Whereas, how many people in America know people who have been in prison? Oh, I suspect if you're African American, yeah. you probably know quite a few people. Oh, I think it's it's a class thing. Because yeah, I right. think you can be an African American daughter of two doctors and go to Harvard and still not know anyone okay. in jail. Okay, it's much I mean, more class because thing. more African Americans do go to prison statistically. Mm. And that's and that's also what what both Nicola and Michael talked about as well is that you it's not just race it's race and class and gender as well which exacerbates the likelihood that you yourself will be in prison. So I mean, th you also just connect that to the same factors exacerbate the likelihood that you would know someone else who has been to prison or is going to prison. But I don't, I just don't, I don't think we're ever going to get to a position where like so many people have been to prison that it just becomes normalized. And right, something we have to, right, right, right. I guess that's what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, with so many people in prison, you would think that more people are like, okay, well, you've been to prison. That's just what happens. And right. you're not a terrible human being. And I will give you a job and I will do this and that. Whereas because it's so split on racial lines. Yeah. And it is so groups who know other people who've been to prison. Yeah are, you know, they're probably very supportive of them anyway. Right. So it's not, you know, unless we have a lot of white men going to prison, it's not going to be... <laughs> Which a, we do. I mean, yeah, okay, numerically, sure. we do. Maybe like, upper middle class then. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. 
All right, now we've reached the point in the show that we like to call I Predict a Riot. It's when we share our predictions and prognostications on any of the topics that we've been talking about today. So I'll get the ball rolling. My prediction has to do specifically with the the change in policy that we were talking about earlier about ending private uh, prisons and the federal contracts with private prisons. I predict, and I mentioned this a little bit before, but I that it won't impact imprisonment rates, that even though they're not going to continue to use those prisons, it's a drop in the bucket in terms of the absolute number of prisons and uh, number of prisoners in the United States. And fundamentally, it doesn't get to the root of what has changed the incarceration rates in the states. So... We're not going to see any changes on the topics that we've been talking about from that change. Sophie? Yep. So recently we've seen a lot of divest movements on campus. LSE has a very large divest from fossil fuels campaign. Basically what that means is that students are becoming more aware of the shareholdings that the universities hold. And when they feel that the university has invested in things that aren't necessarily ethical or right for the future, um, they want to encourage the university to essentially divest their money from those companies. And I saw that Columbia University has rallied, the students of Columbia University have rallied to divest from um, the prison systems in which their university had invested a lot in private prisons companies. And I think that the more people are aware of kind of the injustices and the issues within the criminal justice system, they might also encourage their universities to divest from that too. And Chris, you're the last one. Cool. Lucky last. Um, So we talked a lot about the idea of how punitive criminal justice policy is and how that leads to more people going to prison. My prediction is that the next few decades, we will see criminal justice policy to become slowly less punitive with fewer people going to prison and for a short amount of time. Now, why is that? It's not because the milk of human kindness is going to be flowing through these judges and (laughs) state legislators. It's because prison costs a heck of a lot of money. Mm. They spend spend billions and billions on private prisons and public prisons across the U.S. It doesn't make economic sense to be throwing these mostly men into a hole for 10 or 15 years and have them come out and then cost the country billions in recidivism. So my prediction is they are just going to send fewer people to prison because it's cheaper. Huh. And they can be more productive outside of prison. Indeed. Hmm. All right. That's it. Cool. That's it. Great. All right, it's time to wrap up this episode of The Ballpark. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Sophie Donselman and Chris Gilson, and our interviewees, Nicola Lacey and Michael McQuarrie. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donselman, and also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rhea Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're the bee's knees. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be talking about LSE's connection with the United States. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.